Welcome to the Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Luis Perales, a senior associate at AEI's Academic Programs Department. For today's episode, as commencements are happening across the country, I'm excited to share an interview with AEI's Charles Murray on his book, The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead, as well as his advice on how college students and recent graduates should think about spending their 20s. Before getting started, remember to subscribe to the Campus Exchange and to give us a rating to help others find the podcast. If you're a college student, check out the links on our show notes to learn more about AEI's work on campuses across the country. And be sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Charles Murray. Charles Murray, welcome to the Campus Exchange. It's my pleasure. So we're in the middle of graduation slash commencement season. A lot of our listeners are wrapping up exams, wrapping up the academic year, maybe heading on to an internship, maybe heading on to first job or grad school. So we wanted to spend some time to talk about those themes. And lucky for us, a couple of years ago, you released a book called The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead, which talks a lot about these related themes. But rather than hear me talk about The Curmudgeon's Guide, can you tell our listeners what the Curmudgeon's Guide is about, maybe how it's structured, and maybe more importantly, why you decided to write it. Well, they all fit together, which is to say, half a dozen years ago at AEI, we had a series of tips for interns and research assistants on writing, which I thought was a great thing. But I had a few things I really wanted to get off my chest to tell to the interns and research assistants too. So I started writing a weekly tip for them. It was purely for fun. And about 15 or 20 tips into it, somebody said, you know, you really ought to make that into a book. And so I did a little rewriting, not a lot, and made it into a book. But it started out just for AEI people who were just starting their careers. So I want to talk about the specific tips, but I can't help but ask this right at the outset, which is the Curmudgeon's Guide is in a way distinct from maybe some of the other books that you've written. I think there's a pretty noticeable difference between a losing ground or a bell curve or coming apart, books that are filled with charts, books that have notes at the end of them. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in maybe the writing process of writing The Curmudgeon's Guide versus, say, Losing Ground or Coming Apart? Oh, yeah. It's, it's the difference between writing any nonfiction, data-based thing and either fiction or just personal blathering about your opinion. <laughs> the nice thing about The Curmudgeon's Guide is the same thing that I found when I once tried to write fiction. When you get stuck, you can just make it up. <laughs> you don't have to go to the to your computer and look up the statistics on on such and such and some big database. Some things you can just say what you feel like saying. So what you read in the curmudgeon's guide is Charles Murray unchained from the numbers. And the the big difference was how much I completely enjoyed the process of writing. So let's talk about the early tips in the Curmudgeon's Guide. Again, the, the, the book's structured around a series of tips, and the first half relate to writing well and workplace behavior. So maybe let's talk on that first topic first. What sort of advice do you have for students about skills of clear writing and clear prose? If I had to say just one, it is never, ever turn in your first draft, which is to say, I don't even show my first drafts to my wife, and she edits everything I do. Your first draft is just that. You really don't know what you think yet. And the idea that your reader is 
supposed to get what you say if you put down the words which you think express what you think is just nuts. Partly because you don't know what you think until you have expressed it precisely. And you never express it precisely in the first draft. Writing is a creative process, an intellectually creative process. So if you are one of those students who has complained to a professor who didn't like your prose because he thought your sentences were awkward or something, and you said, well, it's there, though, you know, that's the important thing. No, it's not there. So that's, that's the chief thing. Write over and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until you really know what you think. There's lots more, but I'll just stick with that. And I think the interesting thing, I'll speak a little bit about my personal experience as an undergraduate, but it, it was so infrequent. I mean, and, and Ross Douthat, who's, who's also over at AEI now, has written about this, the tendency among college students to wait until the deadline and then turn in what was probably a first draft is very commonplace. It was commonplace when I was an undergraduate. So that's definitely something to definitely heed and keep in mind. I want to focus on bigger themes about how to spend your 20s. And that's what I want most of the conversation to focus on. But I can't help but ask, because you also write, you include some advice about workplace behavior. That's something that, again, some of our listeners are heading into their first job. So maybe what, what sort of advice do you include in that section of the curmudgeon's guide about how to deal maybe with, with a boss that you don't agree with, that you don't like, or other tips about workplace behavior? Well, of all the tips, there is one that you should take away from this program if you are a 20-something. Excise the word like from your spoken vocabulary. There is nothing that drives me personally crazier, but lots of other grown-ups as well, than the, you know, like, I'm, I'm trying to get a, like, a, a point across, and you know what I mean, like that. <laughs> and the thing is, it's so embarrassing to say that to somebody, particularly if you like them. I have an extremely professional, professionally successful friend, very professionally successful, who I also like a great deal, and she, she uses like all the time, and I can't make myself tell her. So she, stop that. Well, I'm saying to all of the listeners who use like, stop it, because it will actually get in the way of a lot of your supervisors taking you seriously. You do not sound like an adult, a grown-up, when you do that all the time. Some other quick things. When you have a boss that that you don't like, that's a bad boss, and that happens, ask yourself a couple of questions. And one is, is he really a bad boss or you ju- do you just not like his or her style? Because an awful lot of people who have come out of college have never had impatient parents. They haven't had impatient teachers. They have gotten used to the idea of being friends with people and so forth. The first time you're in an office and your boss tells you rather abruptly that he wants this done, and you turn it in, he doesn't say thank you. He just says, huh, gives a little grunt and takes it. A lot of people think that, well, that's being a bad boss. No, it's being a person who's trying to get some work done and doesn't think that he, he has to stroke an employee all the time. So that's one thing. But if you really do have a bad boss, take your issues to other colleagues that have been in the office longer than you have. Do it carefully because you don't want to get a reputation as, as talking behind people's backs. It's much better to go to someone who's on the same level as you are rather than going to a supervisor in another part of the office. 
But go ahead and do that. You'll probably get some good advice. And if you really have a problem of sexual harassment, of racially grounded, ethnically grounded harassment or whatever, at that point, you definitely want to to take it up with the people. Because guess what? Curmudgeons like me, who can be very grumpy, we get really grumpy about sexual harassment and we get really grumpy about any other kind of, of that kind of harassment. And you can go to us for help because we will be on your side. No, that's comforting to hear for sure. I want to, as I mentioned, shift the conversation a little bit to the latter half of the Curmudgeon's Guide, which talks about character formation and happiness in general. And maybe this is one entryway to that conversation. You write in that section of the Curmudgeon's Guide that your 20s are this time in your life, and I'm quoting here, when you have the fewest responsibilities and will suffer the fewest penalties for mistakes and failures that you make. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on it? Yes. In fact, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a really big deal. All the time, I run into people who have just graduated from college and are heading directly off to graduate school. And they are acting as if, unless they get their law degree or their MBA or their PhD or whatever right away, that they will fall behind everybody else and that they can't afford to take time off. So the first thing, and I'm Lewis, it'll probably be a long answer because you've hit on something that I that I think is one of the most important mistakes that that people just graduating from college make. Point number one is pray to God that you are not successful young. It, I, I sort of had this idea when I was 22 that I would be a big success by the time I was 28 or 30. I'd be a presidential advisor or something, and I'd be an ambassador someplace in my mid-30s, and I'd get elected president in my mid-40s. And if not that particular career path, that I was going to be successful young. That's, that is a dangerous thing to have happen on so many grounds. But the chief of all those grounds is that if you are in a difficult career, one which involves expertise, you really ought to understand you are undergoing an apprenticeship. And that's the first of the themes I'd like to express, that a career involves a successful career, involves a long apprenticeship. Mine took me until I would say my mid-30s. And by my mid-30s, I was actually technically a success. And, you know, I was a, you know, I was a principal scientist at a good-sized nonpartisan psychological research company. And I became chief scientist while I was still in my 30s. So in that sense, I was a success. But I was very conscious at that time. I was still learning how to write well. I was also still learning how to do applied social science analysis, because it takes a long time to get good at it. You can take your course in statistics, multivariate analysis, and you can do those things, but it takes a long time to really understand what you're doing. So that's the first notion. You are entering a long apprenticeship process. The second notion that I want to get across is an awful lot of you who are from upper middle class families and who are expecting to go on and get a professional degree of some kind. <laughs> have been in the same comfort zone all your life. You have been the victims of a way too happy childhood. Your parents have been way too loving and way too nice. You have not had nearly enough demanding teachers. You probably have been 
excessively protected from bullies when you were six or seven years old. You've been excessively protected from an awful lot of things in life. And I just would ask yourself, because obviously some of the people who are listening could tell me some stories which would make me back off and say, no, you, you've been tested. You've been put under pressure. I'm wrong about you. But I'm right about a lot of you. Okay. And so as you graduate from college, this is the second major thing. You almost have to be proactive in putting yourself in situations where you have to learn how to be resilient. Because sooner or later, life is going to throw you a curveball and you are going to be under pressure you've never been under before. Something really bad is going to happen that you've never had to deal with before. When that happens, you don't want the first time to be when you're 37 years old and have a spouse and a couple of kids. You want it to be as early as possible. That I consider is your task in your early 20s. Get out of your comfort zone, throw yourself into an environment that you've never known before and that will stress you. And I can offer two broad strategies for that. One of them is you can do what I did. You notice somehow all of my advice seems to be connected to what worked for me and what didn't work for me. But what did work for me was the day after our commencement, I got in an airplane, went to Peace Corps training, went from Peace Corps training to Thailand, where for some reason, Peace Corps was still under that impression, the impression in 1965, which will give you an idea how old I am, in 1965, that you could take a Harvard BA in Russian history, give him three months of training and put him to work in the Thai village health and sanitation department, and that we are going to be of some conceivable value to the people who are doing that work. It was really crazy. But anyway, that's what I, there's where I was, in a foreign country. I'd learned how to speak the language, kind of. And for the first couple of months, I was in such intense culture shock that I envied a, another Peace Corps volunteer who got in a serious car accident and broke both legs and had <laughs> an excuse to go home. Well, I weathered that, and I stayed in Thailand six years altogether. And after the first couple of years, I knew that culture about as intimately as a non-Thai can know the culture. I was completely comfortable in it. I loved it. Well, that is the kind of putting yourself under pressure and then coping with it, which is incredibly valuable as an example when you, when you run into problems later in life, where you can say, well, I got through that one. I can get through this one. The other option besides going to a foreign country, an alien foreign country, going to Paris after graduation does not count in terms of throwing yourself into a strange environment. You can do that, but you can also join the military. I know an awful lot of people who go to elite or prestigious colleges, military never enters their head. And if it does, they say, but that's two years or three years or whatever. I can't take that amount of time. Well, a couple of points. You want to throw yourself into situations where you were tested. Join the combat arms of one of the armed forces. And believe me, you will have no problem. <laughs> you will have no problem. Because even if there isn't a war going on when you join, the military will make sure that you are prepared to fight a war, which means making sure you've experienced a lot of stress. There are very few things that I look back and I say, I really regret not having done that. And I will tell you, not ever going to the military is one of those two things. So anyway, one, either of those two strategies will work. I, I guess I'll leave that there. I have more to say, but I don't want to give an endless answer. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that, 
Thank you for that. And to, to your first point about kind of the perils of early career success, you write in, in the Curmudgeon's Guide, the person that you identified when you were early on in your career was Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's chief speechwriter. And you know, even if that name doesn't exactly ring a bell to some of our listeners, maybe many of our listeners, we can think of examples today. You also mentioned Mark Zuckerberg, right? Someone that very early on had this type of success. But I think you really make a convincing case of kind of the importance of, as you're saying, learning a particular skill, building a particular familiarity with a particular discipline that just does take time. To your second point, I'm curious because this is something that we haven't talked about. What do you think of national service? I think there's plenty of students that are considering something like AmeriCorps, something along those lines where they might not be going to Thailand through the Peace Corps, but are probably, you know, living without much money domestically, living in pretty difficult areas within the US. Do you have any thoughts on that particular path? I think something like AmeriCorps, Teach for America, or so forth, those are good options. The only hesitation I would have there is that, and now I'm particularly thinking about white upper middle class kids who have come from either New York, LA, some one of the other big cities, or has lived all their lives in one of the affluent suburbs associated with a big city. It's fine if you end up in Teach for America, teaching in a an inner city school in Savannah, Georgia, or something like that, which is mostly black kids. That's fine. That's, that's useful. That's valuable. You also need to know what life is like in working class white America. So don't be unhappy if you are sent to North Dakota and are working in a working class white environment. Because you know what? If you've grown up in a suburb of Los Angeles like Beverly Hills or Bel Air or something like that, don't you worry. North Dakota is going to be as weird to you <laughs> and, and, and the culture and everything else as Savannah, Georgia is. And so the, the more you have come from an affluent urban family, the more you have to realize you don't know squat about this country in terms of its, its full variety and richness. And by the way, the ways in which it's fun, you're going to be much more enthusiastic about America if you've had a taste of flyover country, if you are one of the people who doesn't live in flyover country. Another one of the tips that you mentioned that's been especially helpful for me, and I think I'd love for you to tell our listeners about, is thinking about career moves less in terms of credentialing, less in terms of status, and more in terms of, quote, scratching particular itches. Yes. This is this TWIP24. So, so what do you mean by this? And how do we go about deciphering what itch we're trying to scratch? By itch that you're trying to scratch, I mean, think about the things that you have done in your life so far that you really enjoyed in terms of, of work, kind of work. I, I remember when I was taking summer jobs, one of my summer jobs was working on a radio station in Rochester, New York, and there would be rock concerts so that as a member of the radio station, I could be behind stage. And I realized I love being behind stage. And when I worked for a news department and you could get behind the ropes and, and, and other events, I loved being backstage. Didn't want to particularly be on stage. I wanted to be behind the scenes. I wanted to have inside information. That's a kind of itch of scratching that you might have scratched. Another thing is to think about whether you like contest living. There are some people who really enjoy the sense at the end of the day that they have won something 
there's been some kind of thing they've been successful at. And lawyers, I think a lot of times trial lawyers have that kind of itch they need to scratch. They're in a contest situation. You can also think of it in terms of your frame of mind. I'm a writer. Charles Krauthammer was a writer. We were, we were good friends. I would hate the idea of having to be smart once or twice a week in a syndicated column. <laughs> I would go absolutely crazy if I had to do that. Charles Krauthammer, the idea of writing a book <laughs> that would take even six months, let alone four or five years, was anathema to him. As he used to say, he liked the sense of doneness. And when you turned in your column, that was a sense of doneness. Okay, which kind of person are you? And that's going to shape the, the kinds of, of options you take. Yet also, you need to think in terms of the full option, a set of career options. Then the example I use in Promotion Scott Guide is an awful lot of you who have majored in English literature or in political science and so forth have never really considered going into sales as a career. But maybe you also know you do like contest living and winning and losing. Well, when you think about sales, what came into your mind? Probably what came into your mind was standing behind a counter in a, in a department store or maybe being a sales rep for some washing machine company. Well, what about sales if it involved yachts? What about sales if it involved weapons systems? What about all, you know, and all at once you can, you can start to see for some personalities that being involved in the sale of weapons systems sounds really fun. I'm just trying to get across that in many ways, a lot of our listeners have been as geared to a very narrow set of career options as a kid from the inner city. We are geared to a narrow, a different set of career options. But it's a pretty narrow set of, of things. And get out of that. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you want to breach my age, 78, full disclosure, and you want to say, well, it's, it's been pretty good, you only have to do two things. But they're two very big things. One is you have to find your soulmate and marry the soulmate. And I have no advice for you about how to do that. <laughs> I'm just saying that there will, you will never have anything in your life as important as a good marriage. And if you say to me, gee, there are a lot of bad marriages, find something you love to do. Believe me, if you have the attitude, oh, I'll get a law degree, and it's a good general purpose degree, and I can always be a lawyer, and I'll make a good living, and I'll, I'll make some money, and then once I've got a lot of money, or maybe I'm going to go to work for Goldman Sachs, even though I really don't like finance, but I can make a lot of money. And then when I'm 35, I'll start to do what I really want to do. Don't fall for that. First place, if you don't like your work, you will be miserable all that time you're putting together the money. And when you quit that and say, oh, now I'll do what I really want, you'll be starting out fresh in another career where you don't have the, any expertise. So it's going to be a long time before you get good at that. What you want from the get-go is a job where you never look at the clock at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and say, when is this afternoon going to end? So if you can find something that you love to do, the money will take care of itself. <laughs> Not Zuckerberg money, but, but, uh, but you'll, be plenty, you'll make plenty enough money that, that you will be, money won't be an issue in your life. Find something you love to do and learn how to do it well. I definitely want to wrap up the conversation with some of those bigger picture 
themes that you were alluding to there. But I guess beforehand, the example that you mentioned with Krauss Kauthammer really, I think, resonated with me when we talked about this in your class for the Summer Honors Program, which I'll include a link of in the show notes for students that are interested in these sorts of questions. I think you also mentioned an example of the difference of, say, wanting to have a quick game of chess versus a, a long game of chess as well. Just figuring out, again, what sort of activities or what sort of demeanor you have can really influence what you decide to do, maybe just as much as the sorts of topics or questions that, that you're interested in. So that's definitely very helpful. But let, let's wrap up with those bigger picture questions that you were talking about there. One of the things that you say in the Curmudgeon's Guide towards the end is to take the cliches about many of these bigger picture topics more seriously. And, and marriage is one of the ones that, that you mentioned. So what are some cliches of our marriage that you think listeners should keep in mind that maybe you know, they shrug off as, as seemingly insignificant that you think are actually very valuable? Uh, one of the cliches, the cliche most often is that a good marriage is is the best thing that you can have. And that's true. Another thing is that you should really like your spouse when you're looking for a spouse. That Here's the way I put it in terms of choosing someone for long-term happiness. Find a person to whom you are really, really drawn on a personal level as a best friend to whom you are also sexually attracted. <laughs> that's what you need, those two things. What you don't want is someone to whom you are sexually attracted, but who also kind of drives you nuts. So take that. You want to be married to your best friend. That that really does work. Another thing that's not a cliche that I would tell people when they're in relationships is, if this person that you may be passionately in love with seems to ever take any pleasure in saying hurtful things, or if they don't really seem to even notice when they're doing hurtful things, break it off. No matter how devoted you are in a passionate sense, this is somebody you're going to live with, you hope, for 30 or 40 or 50 years. You do not want somebody who needlessly makes you unhappy. That's one of the things. I, I guess I would also say that when it comes to fame and fortune, I've already said that you're going to make enough money. And believe me, Unless you're going to make enough money, you can afford a private jet. After a few, you know, after moderate income, you aren't going to get anything out of being somewhat rich. You either got to be really rich to have things like private jets, or else you're going to be fine. In terms of fame, boy, I don't understand what the what the great attraction of that is. The first few times you are recognized, which has happened to me, not a lot, but it's happened. It's kind of cool, but boy, does that get old fast. And if you're really famous, so you can't walk down a street or eat a meal without people coming up to you, I think that'd be just awful. So here's, here's my advice. If you're really ambitious, and you know, I'd be kind of suspicious of you if you're talented and in your early 20s and you aren't really ambitious, that's great. But if you're really ambitious and you hit the age of 30 or 40 and you suddenly realize probably you're never going to be rich or famous, Take the advice that I first got from David Brooks in one of his books. He has a discussion of how, you know what? <laughs> Fame and success only cure one thing. They cure what he called ambition anxiety. Because if you're very ambitious, you're anxious in the period when you're waiting to find out whether you're going to be successful or famous as to whether you're going to do it. 
And if you do become rich or famous, that anxiety is relieved. But that's basically it. It is not buying you happiness, which really amounts to deep and lasting satisfactions with the things you do in life. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to our, our listeners on the question of marriage that you write an incredibly moving dedication and the acknowledgement to your wife. So I definitely encourage all readers to read The Curmudgeon's Guide and, and look for that because I think it's, it's just incredibly sweet. And I think on the question of the eulogy virtues versus the, the, the resume virtues that you were alluding to, this is David Brooks's language, but it gets to the theme of, at the end of the day, you know, career is important, education is important. But we have to put it in the context of what what people are for, what sort of brings lasting happiness, which brings us that sort of language that I'm sure listeners will recognize brings us to Aristotle. You drew a lot of inspiration for the Nicomachean Ethics. You write about it in in this book. You write about it in, in, in other books that you've written. So maybe to wrap up this conversation, one of the things that I think is most entertaining about the Curmudgeon's Guide is you say, hey, everyone, read the Nicomachean Ethics. But if you don't have time to read the Nicomachean Ethics, there is an enjoyable alternative. So to wrap up this conversation, I think you know what I'm talking about. What's this enjoyable alternative to, to the ethics? Well, if you, you know, I read the Nick McCann ethics when I was a college freshman, and I thought it was dry as dust. And I, I didn't really understand the Nick McCann ethics until I was in my early 40s. But there is a movie that you can watch that will teach you what life is all about, and it's called Groundhog Day. So we're now talking about a movie that's 30 years old. I think so, about 30 years old. It's quite possible that many of you will, will not have seen Groundhog Day. Okay, first place, it's a really good comedy. It has Bill Murray in his prime and Andy McDowell in her prime, and their chemistry is great. You can treat it as a comedy, which it is. It's very funny. And just watch it for the entertainment value. But the first time you finish it, you will have sort of a sense that this guy has really changed over the course of the movie. And then if you watch it again, you're going to see more than you saw the first time. And I don't know how many times I've seen it now, a dozen maybe, but every time I see something new because the, I'll tell you what this movie does. It shows how a guy goes from being a jerk to a fully realized human being, a much better human being, and the steps along the way and the kinds of of things that he thought were important that he casts aside and other things that he scoffed at that he starts to embrace. And all of this is done without any preaching whatsoever. It's still really funny. It's still really charming. None of it is lugubrious. None of it is preachy. But if you watch Groundhog Day five or six times, you'll know a lot more about Aristotle's ethics than you'll know from a college reading of Nicomachean Ethics. Dr. Murray, thanks so much for coming on the Campus Exchange. I enjoyed it a lot, Luis. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the links in the show notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at aei for students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students.